Thank you very much, Kathleen. Let me begin with my version of our present situation. We live in an unpoetic age, an age of prose, of the calculation of naked details. Hemmed in and cut off by dead words and things of our own making, we have become the captives of our own intelligence. In Hölderlin's phrase, we come too late. True, the gods live, but they live elsewhere, in that other world Hegel called the world of poetry. He it was, as the philosopher of Romanticism, who distinguished between two spheres of consciousness, the poetic and the prosaic. For him, the ancient pre-Socratic world was essentially poetic. It was alive. Poetry was lived rather than written. Human consciousness and nature, nature and the divine, were a seamless unity. Word and thing were one transparent, organic whole. The world was not yet opaque, but a living world of mind. And the gods were present in all things, active participants in human affairs. Today's world, by contrast, is prosaic. Prose has become the ruling norm of perception. In Hegel's phrase, it has appropriated to itself everything that is of the mind and impressed the stamp of prose upon it. Listen to Keats. Deep in the shady sadness of a veil, far sunken from the healthy breath of morn, far from the fiery noon and eve's one star, sat grey-haired Saturn, quiet as a stone, still as the silence round about his lair. Forest on forest hung about his head like cloud on cloud. No stir of air was there, not so much life as on a summer's day, robs not one light seed from the feathered grass. But where the dead leaf fell, there did it rest. A stream went not voiceless by, still deadened more by reason of his fallen divinity spreading a shade. This is a dead world, the world of the latter, of imageless abstraction on the one hand and naked physicality on the other, in which the spirit has quite gone to sleep. It is a silent world, soundless. Nothing speaks anymore, therefore nothing has much meaning. Such literalism or nominalism, Owen Barfield calls it idolatry, for it assumes that the world consists of impenetrable things, not transparent images or words, as our condition still. In our need to poeticize the world, to reanimate it and make it whole, we are still romantics. This is made very clear by Hugo von Hofmannsthal in his Lord Chandas letter, which he wrote in 1902. In this fictional apologia, Lord Chandos explains to Francis Bacon how, when young, he had moved brilliantly from inspiration to inspiration, writing marvelous pastorals and plumbing the living structure of Latin prose. In those days of continuous intoxication, the whole of existence seemed to him a great unity. Spiritual and physical worlds formed no contrast. In all, he felt the presence of nature, and life was that presence. It was fullness, meaning. Everywhere I was at the center of it, he writes, never suspecting mere appearance. At other times I divined that all was allegory and that each creature was a key to all the others and I felt myself to be the one capable of seizing each by the handle and unlocking as many of the others as were ready to yield. From this state of grace or hubris, Lord Chandos fell into its opposite. He disintegrated, losing the ability to think or speak coherently. Words crumbled in his mouth and became disconnected from their larger, connotative meanings, became mere denotative sounds. Above all, he lost the connective tissue, the sense of relationship that bound everything together. 
Increasingly, it became difficult for him to voice an opinion on even the most trivial matter. Overwhelmed by the enormity of ideas, his inability to articulate anything in words caused him great anguish. And without words, his world died. It became sheer surface, without an inside, all exterior. What had once been a living whole fell apart. As once, through a magnifying glass, I had seen a piece of skin on my little finger look like a field full of holes and furrows, he wrote, so now I perceived human beings and their actions. I no longer succeeded in comprehending them with the simplifying eye of habit. For me, everything disintegrated into parts. No longer would anything allow itself to be encompassed by one idea. Single words floated around me. Congealing into eyes, these words stared at Lord Chandos, who, returning their stare, found himself plunged into a void. In this desolate spiritual state of isolation and loneliness, Chandas lived a life of numb detachment, broken only by moments of ineffable presentness or intensity, which he could not put into words. These moments, occasioned by the humblest objects, opened in him with a great presence of love. Then all was filled with life and meaning, but this he could as little present in sensible words as he could say anything precise about the inner movements of his intestines or his blood. Thus he remained silent, because, as he confesses, the language in which I might be able not only to write but also to think is neither Latin nor English, neither Italian nor Spanish, but a language none of whose words is known to me, a language in which inanimate things speak to me, and wherein I may one day have to justify myself before an unknown judge. Such is the language we still seek today in the face of our inability to speak from the heart, from the deep well of meaning, which is but our inability to listen with the heart and open to it. We no longer hear the speech of the world, therefore we can no longer speak it. Nature, literature, scripture reveal their meanings only occasionally, and with great difficulty, while the writing of poetry and poetic philosophy and poetic fiction, the imaginative life, likewise becomes more and more difficult. How then shall we raise from the dead the dead language of nature, cries Haman, the Magus of the North, but by pilgrimages to blessed Araby, crusades to the Orient, and a restoration of its magic, reconquered for us by an old woman's ruse. This task, of course, was attempted by many great souls during that second renaissance we call Romanticism. Poets like Blake, Keats, Goethe, Novalis, Hölderlin, philosophers like Schelling and Hegel, theosophers like Swedenborg, Oettinger, Franz von Bader, prophetic theologians like Harman, all tried to hasten the great restoration. I have chosen Harman as our guide today because he most directly and conveniently maps the terrain of the living word that I wish to explore. In what follows, the exposition will perhaps seem largely theological. However, the true subject is not theological as such. Rather, it is the whole domain of the Logos, the world of the informing word, in its aspect of communication, imagination, understanding, cognition. The world of speaking and hearing, dialogue, conversation, encounter, marriage, of human experience, human nature, which for Harman is only revelation, witness, prophecy, in other words, poetry.
Johann Georg Hamann, who lived from 1730 to 1788, is an extraordinary prophetic figure, a solitary and heroic visionary. I work alone, he wrote, with no one to come to my aid with his understanding, judgment, or even taste. The close friend and critic of Jacobi, Herder, and Kant, much admired by Goethe, Schelling, Hegel, and Kierkegaard, Hamann could have been the intellectual and spiritual father of his age, as Hans Urs von Balthasar says, had his literary gifts and style been different. Henri Corbin, too, felt this way, and it is, his, it is to his prescient exposition of Harman's thought that we owe the clearest vision of his importance for any living hermeneutic or encounter with the word. Now, behind Harman and behind Corbin's reading of Harman lies Luther. Luther is critical because it is he who, at the beginning of the age of prose, of the dead word and the dead world, the two are synonymous, first broke through to a renewed, living understanding. He did so by founding his life upon two radical premises, the path of verbum solum habemus, we have the only word, and the light of significatio passiva, passive meaning, as the illuminative way to be followed on that path. For Luther, as for Harman and Corbin, spirit comes first. I am thought rather than I think. My consciousness does not constitute itself. It opens in things, to things, through things. Thus, for Luther's obedience, his thorough listening may be thought of in terms of the opening of the imagination rather than an abnegation of the will. The philosopher, the poet, theologian, therefore, is called and answers. To speak is to be a responsible witness. In other words, the human being is the listener, the one awaiting the call, and the meeting of caller and called is the only knowable reality. Spirit can only reveal, I can only listen. Rejecting the traditional fourfold interpretation of Scripture as applied mechanically in his time, Luther struggled with the meaning of the Holy Word, particularly as he tells us in his autobiography with the phrase, the justice of God, whereby the just shall live by faith. I hated this word, justicia dei, Luther writes, which by the use and consent of all I was taught to understand philosophically in terms of that formal or active justice with which God is just and punishes the sinners and the unrighteous. For however irreproachably I lived as a monk, I felt myself to be before God a sinner. Luther grew to hate this God who punishes sinners, laying the weight of his wrath over and above the damnation of human sin and suffering. But God was merciful. Luther slowly began to understand the justice of God as that by which the righteous man lives, by the gift of God, namely by faith. The work of God, Luther realized, is what God works in us, through us, by faith. What we experience of God is who he is, what can be known of him. And we only experience, only know what we experience, what opens in our souls when we are open, waiting. We only truly understand when we understand with our whole being, when we are what we understand. God's goodness, then, is what makes us good. His wisdom is what makes us wise. His power is what makes us strong. His being is what gives us being. All that is required of us is that we do not resist, that we are not closed within our egos. For God wills to save us, wrote Luther, not by our own righteousness and wisdom, but from without. 
not one which comes and is born within ourselves, but which comes to us from without, not growing in our own soil, but which comes from heaven. In other words, a man can receive nothing unless it be given him from heaven. All is given. All depends on faith. Experience is revelation. Luther's experience of the word's capacity to transform his consciousness and values, his realization that the word of God is not a general communication, an objectified recitation of events that occurred once in the past, but a living truth confronting an individual human being now in his present particularity, a word uttered for him and through him alone, is paradigmatic for traditions of the book. It must be so, since for any people possessing a sacred book descended from heaven, the need to understand it is a matter of life and death. This book, after all, is the rule of life. It contains all things. Everything, therefore, hangs on understanding it. To understand it is to live, not to understand it is to die. Understanding is all, the key to all life. But herein lies a paradox. Our whole being depends upon this understanding, but our whole understanding depends upon our being. We see, we hear, only as we are able. When the word of God, Messiah, is read, writes Swedenborg, it penetrates into each according to his state. And again, the word of the Lord is itself dead, as is the bare latter, but in reading it becomes vivified by the Lord according to the faculty of intelligence and perception granted to each one by the Lord. Thus it lives according to the life of the man who reads, on which account it is marked by an endless variety. For the believer, such understanding is not just part of life. This life-giving interpretation is the very condition of life. Finally, it is life, true life, the goal of human existence, in which being and understanding are one, a single meaning and action. The obstacle, the mystery, is the latter, which is the stone which must be rolled from the tomb for the spirit to rise. As Swedenborg says, the interior sense of the word can by no means be perceived unless the sense of the latter is, as it were, obliterated or overcome, seen through, by the organ of faith that by grace recognizes the invisible in all things visible. The book, which is revelation, is said to descend. It comes down to rest in outwardness, outer meaning. Descent, revelation, then, is an exteriorization, an outering of some more inward meaning. Ascent, conversely, is interiorization, the progressive realization of ever more inward, more comprehensive, profounder meaning. There is an inside to this world. The, interior of the wor interiors of the word are of great beauty, writes Swedenborg. From this one can see how central the metaphor of speech is, or language is. For, from one point of view, to descend is but to speak, to, un to ascend, to understand what has been spoken, to interpret or translate. For what is speech, what is understanding, but a kind of translation? As Harman puts it, to speak is to translate from the language of angels to the language of men so that thoughts become words, objects become names, images become signs, which may be kyriological, historic, symbolic, or hieroglyphical, or philosophical, or characterological. Such translation, however, is not the decipherment of something already existing, 
But as Corbin says, the very apparition of things, their revelation by their being named, descent is thus progressive revelation. Curiological, i.e. proper or true in the sense of the logos of the kurios, the Lord, the word of the word, the Lord's meaning, historic, symbolic or hieroglyphical, philosophical or characterological. Swedenborg likewise speaks of these three levels that he calls celestial, spiritual and natural. And likewise invokes, though implicitly, the idea of translation as the mode of correspondence of these worlds with each other. For Swedenborg, above all, whose life was a continuous intercourse with spirits, the Lord is speech and word, cognition and understanding, imagination. In his spiritual diary, he notes, the speech of spirits is a universal speech, and from it are sprung, and as it were, born all the languages. For it is spiritual ideas that constitute their speech, and when these inflow into man's memory, they excite words corresponding to the ideas which man has in his memory. The speech of spirits is a speech of thoughts or images. More precisely, spirits speak with the primitive idea of words, says Swedenborg, for it must be known that every word has some idea therein, and every composition of words is a composite idea expressed by many thoughts, such as are, as are our thoughts without words, such as the speech of spirits with each other. But angelic language is still more interior, more primary, involving in a moment more things than can be unfolded in many pages. It is important to remember, however, that such levels or worlds or languages, though in some sense discontinuous with each other, are not mutually exclusive. They cannot be, for the divine word is sacred and whole, and speech too in God is sacred, holy, so that the letter also is potentially properly holy, for after all God seeks to be all in all, and is all in all, and the universe is one. The arrangement is perhaps hierarchical, but not in any linear or successive sense. Life is presence and simultaneity, not succession, which is already dead because involved with the past. Celestial and spiritual meanings, the speech of angels and spirits, are simultaneous and interpenetrate with the latter of natural meaning and natural speech, even if these do not obviously reveal them. Indeed, it is in the nature of the letter that it does not immediately reveal the spirit, any more than a man's body immediately reveals his soul to prosaic consciousness. The latter, and there is always a letter, is in the same relation to God and the spirit as the phenomenal world. Like the world of the phenomena, it is a theophanic event which reveals or unveils, becomes audible or visible, while at the same time remain, remaining veiled and concealed. Like the text of the natural world itself, the letter both announces and conceals. It is an open secret. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it, is all, it contains all. It is all a question of reading. This is traditional knowledge. For religions of the book, God always speaks in two ways, through nature and through scripture, each revelation declaring and supporting the other, wrote Harman. These are always the two great theophanic commentaries upon each other that reveal the presence of the living word. In these, God, who is hidden and unknowable by nature, appears while remaining hidden and may be known while remaining unknown. He is hidden after his appearance, or to speak more divinely, even in his appearance, writes Dionysius. But this appearance must be read, it must be named, interpreted, translated, for it is only in being named that God appears. 
God appears, theophany occurs, spirit reveals itself in the act of interpretation which is human nature itself. Humanity from this point of view is the place of the revelation of appearances, is the act of interpretation that makes them possible, the space of the manifestation of things. In Blake's phrase, the imagination is not a state, it is human existence itself. We are all capable of being prophets, writes Harman. All the phenomena of nature are dreams, riddles, visions, which have their significance, their secret meaning. The book of nature and the book of history are nothing but ciphers, hidden signs, which need the same key as unlocks holy scripture and is the point of its inspiration. But what is that key? Harman's biography reveals it. In February 1758, in despair and penury, having during the period of about a year changed his London lodgings almost monthly as he wrung the changes in debauchery and reflection, reading and knavery, industry and idleness, Haman went out in search of yet another room. God was gracious. He found one with very good and honest people, the Collinses of Marlborough Street. Here he bought a Bible and began to read it through, at first with imperfect understanding. What then occurred he describes in the simplest terms. Words that had lain upon the page dead, took on life and meaning his soul, gave meaning to his life, became his life. Suddenly he realized in his heart that each biblical history is a prophecy accomplishing itself in the life of each single man, and that all miracle, all the miracles of Holy Scripture take place in our souls. More than that, all of God's acts, from Genesis to Perusia, are acts God performs in the human soul. History, therefore, and nature too, are enacted by God in the human soul. Nature, thus, is human nature. History, the history of the soul. The further Harman read, the newer and more divine he perceived to be the content and effect of what he read. There was no question about it. In the history of the Jewish people, he found himself confronted with his own autobiography. More than that, in this encounter with himself, he met his God. For the word was God. I recognized my own crimes in the history of the Jewish people. I read the course of my own life and thanked God for his long suffering. Above all, I found in the books of the law a remarkable disclosure that the Israelites, however crude they appear to us, sought from God nothing but what he was willing to do for them. Thus Haman became a philologist, a lover of the Logos in its unity of divine and human words. The living, impressive, two-edged, penetrating, marrow-divining and discerning word before which no creature is invisible, but before whose eyes all things are naked and transparent. Then, on the evening of March 31st, reading the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, Haman fell into deep thought. I thought of Abel, he writes, of whom God said, The earth opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood. I felt my heart thump. I heard a voice sigh in its depths and wail like the voice of blood, like the voice of a slain brother who wanted to avenge his blood if I did not hear it. All at once I felt my heart swell and pour out in tears, and I could no longer, I could no longer conceal from my God that I was the fratricide, the murderer of his only begotten son. Following this, in spite of Haman's great weakness and resistance, the Spirit of God went on to reveal more and more to him. In this way, with, sigh, quotes, with sighs that were brought before God by an interpreter who is beloved and dear to him, Haman continued his reading, enjoying 
that very help with which it was written as the only way to understand it until he brought it to an unbroken conclusion with an extraordinary rich consolation and quickening. Harman's encounter with the quick and quickening word, his sudden hearing of its call, and the prophetic philosophy that was his response or witness to that call, can help us pass beyond that state so well described by Hoffmannsthal's Lord Chandos. Harman, of course, is Christian, but his Christianity is originary, for he sought what was fundamental ontologically. For Harman, it was the same spirit that brooded over the waters in the beginning, that wrote the books of scripture and nature, that spoke with the prophets and overshadowed Mary, that now created his own prophetic understanding and inspired his speech and words. For this spirit is the only one able to seek out and utter the infinite paths of divinity. And if it is the same spirit, it is the same word also. If this spirit is primordial, ever-present, ever-one, then so also is the word, than whom or which nothing is more originary or primal. The word is of the beginning, the first deed or principle, the very possibility of speaking or creation, the reason why there is something rather than nothing. As the Areopagite says, all things, even those that are revealed to us, are known only by their communications. Their ultimate nature, which they possess in their own being, is beyond mind and beyond all being and knowledge. Creation is but the communication, the appearance of God's hiddenness. It is his speech. The heavens declare his glory, in which, revealing himself, he remains hidden. And yet not so hidden, for after all, the Son, through whom all was made, the Father's word, is one with the Father. And in the bosom of the Father, he alone has been the exegete of the fullness of grace and truth. In the beginning then, now and forever, are word and spirit, in whom is neither outside nor inside, neither immanence nor transcendence, neither divine nor human, only relationship, communication, meaning, understanding, revelation as being. Being, certainly, is the sum and substance of every single thing, Harman wrote. But unfortunately, the to'an of ancient metaphysics was transformed into an ideal of pure reason, whose being or non-being it cannot explain. Primordial being is truth, something imparted, grace. Or, more radically, in a letter to Jacobi, Harman wrote, What you call in your language being, I prefer to call word. Here we have a radical break with the world of things and any metaphysic based upon it. In the world of meaning, of words, the primary act is the act of interpretation, the opening of the imagination, not manipulation. And the human being is essentially a prophet, a witness, a poet. For me, there is no question either of physics or of theology, wrote Harman, but only of language, mother of reason and revelation, their alpha and omega. Reason, history, nature, speech itself are one logos, a single revelation or meaning, revealed individually and partially and uniquely in each human encounter, in each encounter of the human soul with God. Each human life, each human vision and testimony is thus infinitely critical and precious. God and man, for Haman everything comes into being and is in and through that relation, including and above all man himself. Man is not man because he was created by God, but because he is addressed by God. He does not live by the word, but because the word speaks to him. 
To hear is to live. But again, this hearing, this dependence, must be thought of not so much in terms of a will that obeys as an imagination that opens. Neither God, therefore, nor the world as it is in God, and as God speaks through it, can be rationally deduced. It can only be heard, witnessed. For Haman, reason is the equivalent of what St. Paul calls the law. Just as sin increases by virtue of the law, so error increases by virtue of reason. The commandments of reason are perhaps blessed, good, and just, but reason is not given to us to make us wise. Everything it touches it kills or puts to sleep, for it creates the illusion that the world can exist without an act of faith, so that all one can say is, Lord, awaken us. The world, as God speaks through it, can only be borne witness to. It must be lived in one's being and heard by the heart. For while the four senses pass by the brain, the fifth sense, hearing, is said to pass directly to the heart. It is the heart that hears. And for Haman, everything arises out of the conversation God holds with the human heart. Nothing finally matters but that, God and man, speaking and hearing. Put, in, put another way, everything created, the creature, is a living speech, a dynamic communicating reality between the two. But in that transaction, which is reality and truth, there is no duality, only a singular experience, a unity. What we call that unity, therefore, is mostly a matter of perspective. Haman usually calls it God, as when he writes, Without thee I am nothing, thou art all that I am. Reality is from God by definition. All that is, is grace or revelation. Our spirit can only be considered awake, Haman writes, when it is conscious of God, when it thinks and feels him and recognizes his omnipresence. But who or what in, in this is God? Haman writes, If one assumes that God is the cause of all effects, great and small, both in heaven and on earth, everything is divine. Everything divine, however, is also human, because man can neither act nor suffer except according to the analogy of his nature, no matter how complex that machine may be. This communicatio of the divine and human idiomata is a fundamental law, the master key to all human knowledge and to the whole visible economy. But there is another fundamental law to be added to this. I know and acknowledge, Harman writes, no other Archimedean point than his word, his oath, and his I am and I shall be, in which consists the whole glory of his old and his new name. The meeting between God and the heart for Harman is the meeting between two, as it were, eyes, for only an I, a living I am, can speak, hear, and respond authentically. Not cogito ergo sum, but rather the reverse, or, to put it still more hebraically, est ergo cogito. Being, which Haman has named word, he now names I. To be is to speak, to speak is to be an I, to be an I is to be a word, in the word, of the word, to be a word in a world, in the world, in the place of words. To be in the world is thus to be together, eye to eye, with other beings that are eyes also, in whatever measure. This mode of being, this relationship, is, of course, what we call love. The word which is being is amatory discourse. For what is the appropriate mode of being with and knowing, understanding, another being like oneself, but love? 
the laying down of self for the sake of other, for the sake of what does not yet exist. It is to create and to create beauty, for beauty is the counterpart of love. The secret parts of our nature, Harman writes, upon which all taste for, all enjoyment of beauty, all truth and goodness are founded, bear relation like that tree of gods in the midst of the garden to knowledge and life. Both are causes as well as effect of love. The coals thereof are coals of fire and a flame of the Lord. For God is love and life is the light of, and the life is the light of men. This is the love that moves the stars. And who is the true subject of love? Ibn Arabi says, a being does not truly love anyone other than his creator. Speak that I may see you, Haman writes. This desire was accomplished by creation, which is a discourse from the creature to the creature. For day speaks to day, and night announces night. The word of creation crosses all climes to the end of the world, and one can hear its presence in every language. The creative word, the living word, is not of any particular word or language. It is the sheer, omnipresent, transparent communicability that traverses all things. It is the understanding that it is a speaking world, a world of images, beings, ideas, not things. Today, because of the ingrained nominalism of our times, we no longer understand this transcendence, the wordless word, the speech of angels and spirits, which, as Swedenborg tells, give human words life. This word that is not a name attached to a thing, but is the thing itself. Who knows where the fault may lie, Harman rhapsodizes, within us or without us. The fact remains that there is nothing for us in nature but fragments, this yecta membra poetae. To gather these is the task of the scientist, to interpret them that of the philosopher, to imitate, or more audaciously, to give them form, that of the poet. What does Harman mean? He means that in the beginning, that is in principle, because of the primacy of the divine human conversation, because God is a speaking God, the powerful speaker, the poet at the beginning of days, a man is, in the image of God, a speaking, hearing, prophetic creature. The substance of things is language. Each phenomenon of nature was a word, the sign, the symbol, the pledge of a secret union, inexpressible but no less intimate, a communication and a community of divine ideas and energies. All that man in the beginning heard, understood, and saw with his eyes, all that his hands touched, was a living word, for God was the word. The echo of St. John here is intentional, for Haman is a Christian, and the primal word of creation is for him God who became incarnate. Creation and redemption are two moments of a single gesture, the humility, condescension, or self-emptying of God to creation or man for the sake of coming near to him. The poet of the beginning of days is the same as the thief at the end of days. Redemption for Haman is the key to creation. The revelation in the flesh is the midpoint of everything. For Haman, God's humility and self-emptying in Christ is not the exception, but the rule of creation. The whole beauty of the world is a miracle of divine foolishness, a free descent of, of the spirit into the hells of createdness and materiality. From Balthazar. This descent, this humility and poverty, is the spirit in the latter. It is an aspect of the unity in the divine revelation, Harman writes, that the spirit of God abases itself through the human pencil of the holy men that it itself impels. 
divesting itself of its majesty just as much as does the Son of God through the servant figure and in the same way as the entire creation is a work of the highest humility. Merely to admire God who alone is wise in the creation is an insult akin perhaps to the abuse accorded to an intelligent man when the rabble estimates his worth by the coat he is wearing. If then the divine style to put to shame the strength and ingenuousness of all profane scribes even chooses the foolish, the trivial, the ignoble. It must be admitted that the eyes of a friend, a confidant, a lover, illuminated, armed with jealousy, are needed if the rays of heavenly glory are to be penetrated in such a disguise. How else could one see a God who must hide himself? The eyes of a lover are needed to see him. Love alone teaches man to read the hiddenness and mystery of things, the contingent signs of the absolute, that the absolute in its generosity allows to appear. It is not the thinking man, but the loving one who is forced to recognize his ignorance, the limitations and fragility of his nature, the simultaneity of the highest and the lowest in all things. Man is not God, the human is not the divine word, and so the condescension and humility, the disguise of the divine in the human, the analogy in the creature, involves a continuous coincidence of opposites, a paradox of natures, a perpetual round dance or perichoresis. God is everywhere, but the letter is not the spirit. The spirit quickens, but the letter is still flesh, a quickened flesh. Every story bears the image of a man, a body, which is dust and ashes and empty, Harman writes, but it also has a soul, the breath of God, life and light, which shineth in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. The spirit of God reveals itself in his word in the form of a servant, but as its own master, it is flesh and dwells amongst us, full of grace and truth. Spirit and letter, like divine and human, ignorance and knowledge, are not two either. They only seem two because human beings are finite, sensible creatures who, though they can perceive more than sense can discover, can perceive truth and essence only through images, figures, paradoxes. All human knowing, all divine showing forth, in this sense, all experience and revelation, is phenomenal and figurative, is a word, a logos, a binding together of what is apart. The senses and passions, Haman writes, understand only images, pictures. All the treasure of human knowledge and happiness consists in images. The first explosion of creation and the first impression of its historian, the first appearance and the first communion with nature are united in this word, let there be light. Thereby began the experience of the presentness of things. Without this primal word, which is light, nothing can be revealed, seen, borne witness to, for it is light which reveals. Light is all, revelation. Every good thing is a grant and a gift from the Father of lights. For Haman, this light of creation, revealing all in the beginning, is also the light of redemption, the light of man. Everything was created by him who redeemed us, If he had not desired to redeem us, nothing would have existed. This life, this existence in him, is the light of man, and light is everything that reveals and makes manifest. It is in this light that we begin to see truly, to hear fully, no longer things, but reality, beings, the creative and primordial beauty of the world, God's glory, in which God's speech lives without shadow. In this light, this single eye, the heart, God and creation meet, and are joined. For Haman, as for Blake, Christians both, Jesus is the union of divine and human word, is the imagination, 
the spirit of prophecy. And, as Haman says, poetry is the mother tongue of the human race. After God had exhausted himself in nature and scripture, creatures and seers, reasons and images, poets and prophets, and after he had spoken by his breath in the evening of days, he spoke through his son yesterday and today until the promise of his future, no longer in the form of a servant, will be accomplished. Less than all will not satisfy. Redemption must continue until the last blade of grass is enlightened, is a living word. In Novalis' words, if the spirit sanctifies, every real book is a Bible. For who has declared that the Bible is complete? Should the Bible not be still in the process of growth? Writing is another kind of listening. The cycle of prophetic revelation may be closed, but the spirit of prophecy still lives and may blow where it will. Indeed, as Corbin so profoundly noted, precisely because it is closed, the very fact of its closure requires the continued openness of prophetic understanding or poetic response. Poetry, like imagination, has become a derogatory word bearing the implication of something unreal, subjective, superfluous. Nothing, of course, is more real or necessary when these words are understood as Harman, Blake, Novalis, Hölderlin, or Keats understood them. Harman's teaching of the living word, his insistence on the word nature of human existence, human reality, that by participation or belonging to that order, we are restored to a living wholeness that precedes our capacity to oppose ourselves to the world, can help us in this great restoration because it provides a foundation at once metaphysical, existential, and injunctive for the attempt, as Keats put it, to see as a God sees and take the depth of things as nimbly as the outward eye can size and shape pervade and still put it into words, living prophetic words. Historically, of course, there is much against it. From the time of Montanus on in the second century, the possibility of individual prophetic response was cut off in Orthodox Christianity. In 869, the tripartite human being was reduced to, du to a duality. Then St. Thomas granted nature autonomy from consciousness. Finally, the epistemological conclusion of the story in the rise of modern science and the decline of religious culture from Descartes through Kant is only too well known. But accompanying this sad tale, the true word has always lived and lives still because it is the nature of things. Poets have always, therefore, and continue to bear witness to it. Lord Chandos and Hoffman style himself fell victims to the age. Others surmounted it. Rilke, of course, and Paul Salant. René Char, Yeats, and poets here. For these Orphic poets, song is being, in song reveals itself, being reveals itself, it is. I will leave the last word to Paul Celan, the Jewish poet, for he above all struggled with the question of the recovery of the living word. His was a context of a language, German, specifically German, but culturally the language of the Christian West, that had been systematically abused, desecrated, and contaminated by its use during the Holocaust that took his whole family. What German has undergone, all modern languages are also suffering in their own way as a result of the universal reduction of life to technology and mechanism. The battle is on, as Temenos readers well know. Paul Celan's tragic example can help us light our way. In one poem he wrote... Once, 
I heard him. He was washing the world, unseen, night long, really. One and unending, annihilated, eyed, light was, saving. In another poem he wrote, Thread suns over gray-black desolation. A tree-high thought grasps the light tone. There are still songs to sing beyond human beings. Thank you.